name is Luke Bretherton, and this is the Listen, Organize, Act podcast, which focuses on the history and contemporary practice of organizing in democratic politics. This extended episode discusses the work of the influential political theorist Hannah Arendt. Her biography is compelling as the numerous films, documentaries, and biographies about her attest. Her life and thought was profoundly shaped by her Jewish upbringing. After studying with the philosopher Martin Heidegger, with whom she had an affair, she went on to do her doctorate at the University of Marburg, actually on St. Augustine. That was under the direction of the, again, very prominent and eminent philosopher Karl Jaspers. But soon after finishing her studies, she was arrested by the Gestapo for researching anti-Semitism by the Nazis. After her release, she fled Germany, eventually settling in Paris. And then when Germany invaded France in 1940, she was detained by French authorities. She managed to escape and eventually made her way to the States, arriving there as a refugee. In time, she became a US citizen and taught at a number of American universities. Her books include The Origins of Totalitarianism, Eichmann in Jerusalem, The Human Condition and On Revolution. These works, alongside her numerous essays, are vital for understanding the politics both of her day and of ours. Like Thucydides discussed in the first episode of this series, Arendt didn't write abstract, speculative works. She focused on historical events and, through reflecting on these, drew out wider lessons for understanding the nature and meaning of politics. The political theorist Sheldon Wolin, who I feature in the next episode, is actually quite critical of Arendt, suggesting that at least in her books, The Origins of Totalitarianism and the Human Condition, she's almost anti-democratic in her understanding of politics. However, she's been turned to again and again, including actually by Wolin himself, by those wanting to reflect on both the dangers and possibilities of democracy. I discuss Arendt's understanding of politics, power, and the resonance between Arendt's work and organising with Leo Penta. I can think of no better person to discuss the relationship between Arendt and organising than Leo. A Catholic priest, long-term organiser and academic, Leo did his PhD on Arendt at the Free University in Berlin, a focus generated by his time as a community organiser in New York, where he helped found the East Brooklyn Congregation's organising coalition. Since 1996, Leo has been based in Berlin, where he taught until 2017 at the Catholic University of Applied Sciences. And in 2006, he became the founding director of the German Institute for Community Organising, or DECO, which is dedicated to developing the practice of community organising in Germany. Leo, great to have you on the Listen, Organize, Act podcast. Thank you so much for being on the show. Luke, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate being here and uh, to talk about Hannah Arendt with you today. Oh, it's great, great, great to talk to you as ever, Leah. And so just give us a little bit of background. Like how, how did you get involved in organizing? Sure. We have to go back to quite a while ago, 1978. Uh, ah. It was my first assignment as a Catholic priest uh, in East New York, which at the time, uh, along with Brownsville, Ocean, Ocean Hill, and 
Bushwick, for example, in the eastern part of Brooklyn were very, very basically devastated neighborhoods for any variety of reasons, also very violent places um, because of the drug trade, especially crack. Um, precinct I lived in had over 100 murders a year. Wow. Um, so it was a kind of a big change and a surprise for me. I had grown up in Brooklyn, but in a much different part of Brooklyn. And also I'd been studying uh, in, in Austria and Germany for the last four years. So it was it was quite a shock in many ways to come back to that. And, How old were you at this time? I was 26. Right. Uh, having been just ordained a priest in, in, in September of uh, 1978, and I came in October. And whether it be chance or providence, depending on your point of view, I guess. Um, Holy that, Spirit! Holy yes, Spirit, Leo! Right, right, right. <laughs> about that time, um, uh, what later became East Brooklyn churches and East Brooklyn congregations was forming. And I heard about it pretty much by accident but got involved uh, very early on in the so-called sponsoring committee process at that time with, with Ed Chambers. So you, so you became, you began then life as, an, as a leader and then eventually became a full-time organizer. That's correct. And that happened quite a bit later, actually. Right. It was right. an, an interim when I took time off to pursue a doctoral degree. And that's how the connection to Arendt came about right. because I wrote my dissertation about her and her notion of power, which was really a reflection on my time uh, spent um, with organizing uh, in the years before that. You became a full-time organizer, worked in New York for many years, and then just say you moved, when did you move to Berlin? And well, how long yeah, have you I, been there was an interim. In? I moved to Philadelphia in right. 1990 and spent time there, both teaching and, and organizing with the organization that was there at the time, Philadelphia Interfaith Action. And then moved back to Germany or went, moved to Germany in 1996 in the fall. So you set up DECO, uh, which is the kind of German affiliate with the Industrial Aries Foundation. You've been, you've been organizing. They're based in Germany, based in Berlin, but organizing, setting based, up. Based in Berlin, starting in Berlin, organizing in Berlin, and later branching out to other places. And um, very much also in connection with um, at that time, Citizens UK, or right. that's how we also uh, came together and uh, had a lovely had a lovely uh, couple of days in in Berlin observing the organising, and and it was wonderful, wonderful right. time. Many yeah, seems did, a long t- long time ago. Now. Yeah, it is, I guess now. Yeah. So what what does it mean for you to be a Catholic priest and a full time organiser, and, and how do you see them as in relationship with each other? I think ministry comes in many forms, and even ordained ministry comes in many forms, uh, particularly in the Catholic Church, but also in other denominations where, um, like yourself, one can be engaged in organizing, can be a professor, can uh, do things that um, are expressions of ministry, uh, particularly for me in terms of Catholic social teaching, I think that um, being a priest and an organizer, you don't have to be a priest, obviously, to be an organizer, but mm-hmm. it doesn't doesn't prevent you from being an organizer. In my view, it's always been a part of my priestly ministry. Right. I have other parts of that ministry, as I mentioned, uh, working with the English-speaking Catholic community and being involved in liturgical ministry and, and other forms of ministry, but um, in a very concrete sense to make Catholic social teaching and its 
work for justice with its, uh, if you will, anticipation of God's reign. Um, those are things that I think um, are able to make uh, the Christian community, the church present to people much more directly in some, in some senses, in their pain, in their anger, but also in their potential for bringing about uh, positive change. Uh, that's... Uh-huh. So you don't see them as two separate vocations. You see this what the organizer is an expression of your vocation as a priest. Yeah, that's how I would that's how I would term it in my case. I think it's right. obviously different for different people, uh, how they see that in their relationship to their faith or to other motivating factors that are that are possible, but I, I see no problem with with that. Maybe other people might have a problem with it as I've right. I've experienced. But um Can you just say a little bit about like because you've been in this unusual situation well, of doing in-depth organizing in Germany and in-depth right, organizing right, in, in, right. in the U.S. Yeah. What's, what's the difference of context there, just to right. give us a flavor yeah. of, of that? Generally speaking, um, I think the biggest difference is uh, the understanding of civil society. Right. And the much more statist approach to civil society in, in Germany because of history and, and many other things um, as one interesting um essayist put it it's hegel one in germany right and so so the state is of the utmost importance and it's always been a a, i just i should just explain that that in hegel's view civil society the different elements of society like the classes are all in a sense sublated or subsumed within the state and serve the state whereas in in America, the view then is that the state is its own thing and civil society is, is an independent right. third right. sector or independent sector, which can challenge the state. And that's a it's very different philosophically. I think, I think that's right. I think that is a key Precisely. Key that's who, who shapes, who makes even, or who determines what civil society looks like and its self-sufficiency. Mm. I think, I think the, other, the other aspect, I mean, going back to the Hegel yeah. thing, the other aspect sure. there is that the state for Hegel, and I think very much in Germany and a lot of Europe, and I would say this certainly of you in Britain, the state is the vehicle for freedom. That's how yes. you realize yourself. Whereas in America, the civil society and independent forms of association, that and, and somehow what, what, what is outside of the state is the realm of freedom. And yes. that's how you realize yourself with others. So they're yeah. very different. There's always this, I find this often in the UK, this reflex, we've got to turn to the state and the state should do everything. And there is, that's the kind of instinctive move. Whereas there's always resistance to the state, the state's the problem. Right. And what is outside of that is somehow, um, it's either suspect Mm. or it is seen as something that um, is maybe just for exceptional situations. Right. Right. particularly in the form of protest. I mean, right, right. where that's recognized in Germany is, is in the form of large-scale protest, movement mm-hmm. protest. That's that's acceptable. Um, going into the streets is the, sort yeah. of the, yeah, auf die Straße gehen in German, uh, is mm-hmm. sort of the, that's how expression of civil society is perceived. But But sort of constant, organized, reflective, uh, initiation of action over a long period of time and setting up the conditions for doing that is somehow seen as as um, as not the first answer at, at right. any rate. And and yeah. one of the answers is, is of course to become part of the state and form a new party. Right. That's um, 
Uh, there's a big history, a long yeah. history of forming new parties. And on the other hand, it, I mean, that's what's been somewhat perplexing to me in all of this, as I've done this work for over 25 years in Germany, is despite uh, the way in which the state has behaved uh, ever since um, since Hegel, if you will, nonetheless, this continued really trust in the state and the reflex to look to the state for anything that is good and to see what comes from other sources as at least suspect, if not uh, very, uh, an aberration even. Right. I think, I mean, directly, we'll come on to Arendt in a bit, but I mean, it does directly relate to Arendt's work around what constitutes the nature of the public and the public or raise publica in the kind of Latin that the sense that the state is the only public thing uh-huh. in a German context, and I think largely in a European context, and then everything else is private, whereas uh-huh. that sense of a public life in civil right. society independent of the state yeah. is is much more present in in the American context and, and other contexts around the world as well. And so this kind of strong sense of a public-private divide within the, the state being the, on the public side. If you want to act publicly, right. you, act you, you act towards the state or through the state. I think I, mean, I see it. I mean, just the other difference is you, the kind of comment on, because I think you were referring there to the history of obviously the kind of history of Germany and the Second World War and the Nazis and the kind of totalitarian state, questions of power, questions of leadership, I guess those would be other, there's a sense of understandable sensitivity there around issues around power and leadership. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, I think that it's a question ultimately of of taking responsibility uh, for shaping the shared shared, uh, context in in which people live. And... That's what is very quickly, I think, abrogated to the state, right? And and to leaders who are in the, the part of the political elite, or even more damagingly, at least as far as Arendt is concerned, to bureaucrats, right? Uh, leaving things to, in a sense, nameless uh, mm-hmm. leaders, nameless power holders uh, who operate. Uh, without a whole lot of uh, responsibility, not responsibility, but accountability mm. to those whom they whom they serve and who very often, I think, in my experience, are, are simply much more worried about not having to take responsibility for things, but rather being able to say, this is what my job is and I do it and that's it. Right. Um, and that spills over into into institutions which we would consider to be civil society institutions like churches, uh, like voluntary associations of many kinds, who, uh, first of all, are structured also very similarly to the state bureaucracies, even in terms of their salary scales and their uh, the way in which they're organized, uh, even the large associations like Catholic charities or Lutheran charities or uh, other helping organizations that um, are almost quasi-governmental. And, right. and, of course, that extends to the church. And we have the whole history of what happened um, during uh, the, the Hitler regime and the, the but bef- even before that, the closeness between what's called throne and altar in, in yeah. terms of the, the, the churches of the Reformation in Germany, uh, 
I mean, state churches are in effect departments of the state, so yeah, they're completely yeah. subsumed within the state structure. Yeah, so that yeah. there is really isn't a kind of that sense well, of a, in Germany. There is no state church any longer, but there is still this carryover from a time when uh, you know the settlement around religious um, belonging and and um, the only way to settle the Thirty Years' War to uh, everybody is has the religion of their prince. Uh, which meant that people changed uh, depending on who the prince was. So, nice. and and then the preservation of the of the taxation powers of the of the recognized religions, um, which is, still plays a very important factor. Mm. And the government does the tax collecting for certain religious institutions, charges them a fee to do it. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. um, people who are members. Um, pay through the tax system to support particular churches that are recognized under the constitution or particular religious groups, I have to say, right. that are recognized under the constitution. A, a very um, distinct system, not a state church, but on the other hand, a very close connection between at least mainline uh, religious traditions, if you will, and, mm-hmm. and and the state. So that that's part of it. So that means that mediating institutions also tend to be very state-oriented, if not also virtually state controlled in some cases um so there's a there's a there's really a blurring of that line in a much greater to a much greater degree i think the i think the other just going back to the earlier point you made about uh, in relation to aaron then the the emphasis on what is public and political is all about law and procedure and bureaucratic process and anything the sense of then being active citizens who have a shared mm-hmm. responsibility and who can act together politically rather right. than bureaucratically or right. legally. Right. And this conflation of politics with what is law, policy, and procedure rather than shared action with each other towards shared ends. That is, I think that's a, for me, working both in Britain, doing organizing in Britain and in the US context. That is, there's this reflex I find often in the British context that politics is what's to do with the state, what's to do with law, what's to do with kind of bureaucratic procedure and control or management of that. And there's a very, it's always a struggle to help people understand. I mean, I think it's also a struggle in the US context, but the struggle to understand this kind of how do we come together as active citizens participating in building a shared life together and and that, that democratic sense of citizenship of, coming together to take responsibility for your living and working conditions and then how do you enable the state or a corporation or whatever it is the hospital or the school to be um, accountable and responsible for that shared life or that shared good and that's i think that's the whole point of, of Aaron's political work yeah <laughs> is yeah. to is to is to make this distinction between what she would consider true politics mm. uh almost a kind of pure form of politics which of course has been criticized as as being um you know uh, very utopian or at least not taking into account for example the social factors that she yeah. really tries to keep out of the political realm precisely in that redefinition of what politics is and that all of this other uh, apparatus, whether it be electoral politics, whether it be uh, procedure, whether it be law, uh, is secondary to primary politics. Right. 
and that when primary politics, if you will, in that sense, is lost, then uh, states and laws and what have you collapse. And mm-hmm. she tried to show that uh, in, in various ways, particularly her book on revolution, yeah. where she compares the French and the American revolutions, uh, particularly her interest, for example, at the time in the Hungarian revolution. I'm sure she would have seen similar uh, motivations and motives in things like the overthrow of Marcos in the Philippines, yeah. um, uh, Tiananmen, particularly the German uh, revolution, if you will. Of, of Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia yeah. in 1989. In 1989 yeah. in Czechoslovakia. So all those examples, or in Poland as the, mm. as the prelude uh, to so much of the change that took yeah. place in the Eastern Bloc. Uh, wherever she was always looking for those moments when people came together and were able to initiate rather than simply react. Mm. So it's kind of politics precedes law and the state and procedure, not procedure, law and the state precede politics. And they're, 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 yeah, they're the, they're the, they're what happens when you try to um, freeze, if you will, uh, power and action into mm. some kind of something like a constitution and a set of laws. And she also has a very interesting understanding of law, not in terms of command and obedience, but in terms of really something that people agree on. And that's why laws have their, uh, have their force or right. their, their, right. um, to put it to put it again, put it in slightly simplistic terms, covenant comes before contract. Yes. something that Sheldon yeah, Wolin picks Sheldon up Wolin on. Sheldon Wolin yeah. really uh, puts puts in the center of uh, his understanding of democracy. Yeah. Uh, so you so you wrote your. I'm just kind of. That's a nice segue sure. into Arendt. You you wrote your dissertation on Hannah Arendt, like, and you out, coming out of doing the organizing work. So how did you, you know, why do you think she has such a pull? Uh, why, why do you think she has? What, what, how, how did you? Why did you turn to her coming out of the organizing experience? What, what, what stimulated the interest in her? Well, it was it was first planted when I was uh, an undergraduate graduate student in philosophy. I had several professors who um, uh, used Arendt uh, as part of their syllabus, if you will, and encouraged us to read Arendt. At that point for me, it was mostly theoretical. Mm. Uh, but particularly reading the human condition uh, was the central work that we looked at a lot. And uh, and then when I went into this practical situation, as I told, I said, said earlier, working in East Brooklyn and coming into contact with organizing, a lot of this language um, seemed familiar on the one hand, yet on the other hand, well, where does this all come from? Mm. Uh, words like power, action. Uh, relationship and some of these key ideas of, of, of organizing. And so when I went to uh, do my doctorate, my plan was to write about Arendt. I ultimately wrote about her notion of power and, and doing it basically as a reflection on my experiences mm. uh, of several years of being not an organizer, but being a leader in an organizing process. Mm-hmm. So those those two things kind of came together, and I saw what I did in Berlin in those years. So I so I remember um, when I I interviewed Ed Chambers many years ago now, and and went to his office in Chicago, and the, the whole of the top shelf above his desk, and I was sitting there looking at his books as you do, and the whole of the top shelf was was Arendt or, or books about Hannah Arendt, and and it's, it struck me that the, both not just you but Chambers and many organisers have turned to Arendt for for 
developing a kind of concept of politics. Why is it? Why do you think she's her understanding of politics is so gener- generative for understanding the work of organizing? I think fundamentally because there's so much resonance between what we do and teach in organizing and uh, what she writes about, even though her contact with community organizing was minimal. There seems to be some contact in New York. Oh, okay. Uh, she mentions one place in Unviolence where she has some contact with community organizers, whoever they were and whatever right. they were doing. But uh, I think uh, irrespective of, 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 of that, uh, there is a tremendous resonance there. And right. I think that got amplified a little bit because of my contact with the chambers and our, um, not just our work on practical organizing, but we, we did have a, a very good rapport in um, reflecting about mm. the work. And, um, you know, I can, I can remember very vividly, for example, going with the chambers one time to a, symposium at the new school where Sheldon Wolin and Jürgen Habermas were discussing their notion of democracy. Wolin was introducing what later became his his essay about fugitive democracy, for example. So there's a lot of interchange. So one of the key distinctions organizers make is there's always been this emphasis on self-interest and how to understand self-interest and distinctions between selfish interest and selfish self-interest rightly understood and various ways of of understanding that Aaron's Aaron's work has kind of helped shape a, a particular kind of understanding of of interest as inter essay that that which yeah. lies between us can you just mm-hmm. expand that a bit more and how her her framing of interest kind of reshaped an understanding of how in in particularly in IF's understanding of organizing self-interest is is conceptualized mm-hmm. well i mean first of all i think one of the f- fundamental things that Arendt is trying to get across we talked a little bit about it earlier is that action is different from making from production right. uh, with which it's often confused that's part of her critique of the tradition of, of political thought so action is the least the human activity that's least reliant on things, right? on objects. Although she does say at the first level, um, we need a world of things that both separate and connect us. You can think of it like a table that brings us together on the one hand, but also makes a certain amount or keeps a certain amount of distinction and, and separation. That's kind of the first level, and the second level. Just to is, just to, uh, just, sure. it's important to clarify there that because that, that image of the table is very important for Aaron and is picked up by other figures. Again, Wolin is someone else who picks up on that. But that sense of the table, you're both an individual, mm-hmm. you're both distinct, you're differentiated, but you're profoundly connected and in relationship. And, and so there's, you've got both relation and distinction. And, and, distinction. and I think you're neither collapsed into individualism. Mm-hmm nor collapse into collectivism. It's difference in relation through the shared world of things and the, the image of the table. I think Because I think that is, often we have this polarity between either a bunch uh-huh. of individuals who contract together in a kind of libertarian idea yes. or a kind of state socialist, state communist with just a collective mass, everything is all the same. Or, yeah, now contemporary or environmental, we're all kind of yeah. part of the same and collapsed into some plemera sameness. And that thing of politics for for Arendt is 
you've got to have distinct individuals who are also cannot be individuals and cannot realize right. themselves outside right. of relationship with others exactly. through this shared exactly. world of things. Exactly. And because for Aaron, you can't, at least in terms of power, you can't act without others. Right. You need others. And that's the second level, if you will, of inter-essay, of being between, or what is between, and, and that's the, what she calls the web of human relationships, which is right. an in-between space, which, interesting enough, she says, cannot be where people are just for and against, right? Uh, but have to be with each other. Uh, and that creates the space for action. And so this, this what is between us uh, is of utmost importance to the ability to act. And yeah. what she calls the web of relationships. Yeah. Uh, I think again, just to pick up on that, the there's it, it, it triggers for me that sense of there's a very famous political the, kind of one of the founding figures of modern political theology, Carl Schmitt, who defines mm-hmm. the political in terms of the friend enemy relation. Yes. And obviously, we see that kind of many ways he articulates a, a strong understanding of contemporary politics as this polarization. Yes. yes. You know, if you're not with us, you're against us. Against us. We know who we're against. We yeah. have an ideological checklist of all the things we agree on, and then we right. pose right. that against other people. And that, that friend-enemy relation is the fundamental political relation. Oh. And yeah. Arendt is countering that and saying, no, 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 no. The fundamental political relation is this interest, interesse, what lies between us, that is the basis of power, the basis of our ability to act together, right. of difference in relationship. Exactly. And the basis for revealing who we are, right? which is a key uh, point, which leads then also to the notion of story and the way in which action moves into narrative about action. Oh, okay. And Can you expand on that a bit? Well, I mean, basically, Arendt is saying that, that we reveal ourselves in action, in and through action in a way that is different in the way perhaps an artist reveals herself in a, in a painting or a sculpture or whatever, also different from simply laboring, simply expending energy. Um, but where there is a distinctiveness of we, we enter into the public realm and are seen and heard by others. Right. And in being seen and heard by others, um, we reveal who we are in a way that is perhaps even not known to ourselves or can't be known to ourselves. So there's kind of, there's a, I mean, this is quite Aristotelian actually. You, you literally come to be, you're fulfilled. Yes. You can only, I can only be truly Luke Brotherson. You can only be truly Leo Penta through shared action, shared political action with others, which is different from what I do in the household, which is just me feeding, looking after kids, making things happen that kind of world of necessity it's through yes. this public action with others that we i literally come to be who i am mm-hmm. right and as a free as a free person as a, as yeah. a free person and it doesn't happen in contemplation so it doesn't happen right. in philosophy if you will right uh and it doesn't happen in the household the monks. And, in, and in the private yeah it's, yeah it's 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 about entering the space of appearances as she calls it mm-hmm. uh where one is seen and heard and one is seen and heard together and and in that way, in a certain sense, you could say history happens. Right. Uh, and basically, from the point of view of the observers or the myth, the, the, the co-actors, uh, if you will, uh, who participate in this collective uh, form of action. So that's that's a very that's a very key element um, of of this idea 
of action. What 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 she doesn't seem to do, she seems to say that this web of relationships exists uh, already. Certainly it does, but I think one of the things we're organizing uh, brings a certain critique or, if you will, a certain um, expansion on that thought is that uh, the question arises, well, who cares for relationships? Right. Who, um, who, is, who goes about um, deepening relationships or initiating new relationships, who expands relationships beyond what seems to be a closed circle of people in relationship, whatever that may be, whether it's the family or the mediating institution or, or citizenship or whatever. Uh, and I think that that's, that's an important point that um, Aaron seems to put more emphasis on the fact that action brings people together and, and brings them out of their uh, closed enclosure, if you will. Um, I think organizing recognizes the fact that that often has to be done as a prerequisite for action, particularly in a world that is polarized in this for and against, hmm. or that is polarized around what she would consider to be um, uh, uh, what we might call in organizing non-enlightened self-interest or self-interest that only sees a particular narrow interest as what why we're entering the public arena. Right. So, because self-interest there is a fight of different factions, yeah, yeah, yes. each pursuing their material goods, rather exactly. than, in Aaron's exactly. term, self-interest is my interest in relation to others, where I can only become myself, in a sense, my my material well-being, but also my kind of who I am as a person right. through this relationship, through these public relationships with others. But I think you're right that organizing. Some ways you know, you can connect it to a kind of feminist ethics of care. Who, how do you, how how do you actually care for the quality and character of the relationships that that are then tended and cultivated oh. th that that enable this shared action? And in some ways, Aaron isn't that concerned about that side right. of things. Yeah. But actually, that in the organising work, you've got to do both. It's both the kind of quality and character relationships and how people yeah. are. That's the organizing work. How do you connect right. people in institutions yeah. and as well as come come together for shared action at yeah. particular moments? And I think action for Arendt is more haphazard. Right. And what organizing tries to do is is to uh, make that more consistently possible by right. cultivating relationships, by caring for the commons, as others have termed it. Um, so I think that's, a, but that's an important point that, that relationships are central to the possibility for action and the possibility for action for, for Hannah Arendt is also the possibility for uh, generating power. Right. Uh, that's the condition for power, not anything else. Yeah. Because so she has this very strong exactly. relational sense of power. We, exactly. we have power when we come together and when the strength of relationships between us. Or yeah. at least the possibility of acting. That's the potential side of power hmm. is when we have this potential and that potential uh, only arises when you have people who are in relationship enough with one another, who have enough trust in one another, basically, to um, to take this step into the public arena and to, to do things together and uh, to do them not just for the pursuit of a particular narrow goal or interest. Right, right, right. Uh, so how does how does that relate to? So we've got this strong notion of self interest as that which lies between us. We've got this central notion of shared action as the basis of power and how we realize ourselves. And so we all have a kind of selfish interest in some ways 
to, to kind of form these forms of common life together. How does that connect to that other great rule in organizing of the action as in the reaction? Because she's got this quite interesting understanding of the unpredictability of action. You can't, yeah. you can't, unlike bureaucracy, unlike law, unlike state mechanisms or kind of techniques where you can, can control what happens. You think of a chemical process, you add this to this or an engineering process, you add that to, to cause and effect. Political action for her isn't that kind of cause and effect. It's always protein shifting, changing. New things can happen in the world because of politics. And you just expand on that. How sure. connect her understanding of action to this notion of the action is in the reaction? Sure, I'll take a try. Um, <laughs> I mean, she she one of the things she says about the reason why action uh, or the traditional political philosophy tries to kind of rule out action or move to this idea that we talked about of statist and bureaucracy and whatnot, what have you, is because of two characteristics that action has. It's it's the unpredictability and it's the irreversibility right. of the results of action. So with this factor of, of um, being unpredictable, you, you also don't know what the reaction is going to be. Right. <laughs> the unpredictability, you you obviously in, in organizing as a, as a, as a, as a, as an art, if you will, we try to plan action from expected um, reactions, but you're never, you can never be sure about that. Mm. And, and most times we, we are not, in fact, or we don't, aren't able to foresee all the consequences of, 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 of acting, which Aaron would say, well, that's a good thing, because mm. if you did, it wouldn't be acting. Uh, <laughs> it yeah. would be making or, or something else. So uh, it would just be an engineering process or a chemical mm. reaction. But, but because of that unpredictability, um, uh, we know, <laughs> kind of know when we've had a good action, uh, if, there is, if there are reactions and if there are also reactions that we, we can't plan on. Uh, and, and she says the only, on the other hand, the only um, remedy for the um, unpredictability of action is the possibility for promise. And that plays a big role, of course, in interactions in community organizing, getting people with whom we interact to make promises about what they will do at some time in the future. She kind of islands of certainty, she calls them, that can be created through promise and uh, through a certain kind of covenanting, if you will, Mm. Uh, and and uh, that promises are to be kept is sort of giving a certain amount of of uh, stability and reliability to action. And I think that's part of what we expect as reactions in organizing right. is that those with uh, power in whatever form of the possibility for changing things make a promise to do something very concrete and not just say, yeah, I'm for you. I think you're right. So that's like the, in the, in an assembly, you get a politician or you get a business leader in Mm -hmm. the, it's the ask you're asking for this commitment. And it's very different from a kind of bureaucratic process. It's this, it it has standing because you, in a sense, you have made a covenant together. You've promised, they've promised to do X. You're going to hold them accountable to doing an X. And very, further often, action. And very often we promise in organizing to do something along with that. Right. Yeah. So that, so that there's a, a mutuality of, of, of responsibility, if you will, a promise mm-hmm. that takes place. And, and, and so that's, uh, I think 
part of what's contained in action is in the reaction. And now, yeah. of course, there are situations where someone says no, yeah. <laughs> or will, or where that's portrayed in in the press as something negative. I mean, mm. we, we had this when we founded the second community organization in Berlin, where a lot of um, Muslim groups took part in the founding. Um, the headline was basically that we had started some um, uh, organization that was was going to be Islamist in its, in its uh, right. Okay, so you know that's a reaction we didn't want, but it's a reaction right. we got and a reaction we had to deal with, which is part of this um, part of this unpredictability. Right. So you always, in a sense, politics is always uh, is. One of my, I think it is actually from Machiavelli, the kind of summary of his understanding of politics. Of politics is action in time, yes. and you can't predict it, you can't engineer it, you can't, you know, you're, you're always having to react. Right, right. And then, but also that also means that new things are possible. New you don't always know what's going to happen. What's going to happen? And and Arendt would would bring that back to what she calls natality right. as a fundamental feature of of our humanness, uh, kind of over and against Heidegger, um, being unto death, uh, for Arendt, it's kind of being unto action, right. Uh, right. being unto initiating, being unto uh, bringing something new into the picture that wasn't there before because people have gathered and are able to act often very surprisingly. I mean, she looked mm. at it at this larger level of, 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 uh, kind of revolutionary action but but as comes in in on violence for example um the her attitude toward the student uh movement of the 60s right. uh, and and toward the civil rights movement for example hmm. uh so that she was always looking for places where uh people came together to initiate and this yeah. for her was part of a basic human understanding yeah. and the world know, so and for her the world is not set you're not it's not fatalistic. It's not. We're not determined. There's. You can act to change the world, but right. only through these forms of shared action. I mean, I think a good example. It just struck me. A good example of this actually is what happened across Eastern Europe and, and the former Soviet bloc in 1989. Who it's a set of hugely unpredictable, both positive and negative outcomes, and but there was this shared action in the pro-democracy movements driven largely by civil society groups, which generated new possibilities, history yeah. kind of happened, you know, new Happen, things happened in new history. Things happened, yeah. And unexpected things happened. Yeah. No one expected the revolutions of 1989, 1989 yeah. uh, for the most part, with, among, except for a very few people. This yeah. was, was going to be the status quo and, and politics and the states had, and, and the sovereign states had, had, gotten used to it and were basically accepting of it. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's the famous story about, you know, when they started building the Berlin wall, they didn't even wake Kennedy up to tell him they were right. until the next morning, uh, how accepted in a sense, this, um, this cold war situation was right. 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 Uh, so that I think that's one of the other. Right. And, and I think the other thing there is, is it, it emphasizes how it was, it was ordinary people. I remember I was actually in Berlin in 1989 um, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd seen, I'd been in Prague in, in 18, early November, mm -hmm. and then I, I hitched over to and stayed with a friend who was living at the time. And a million people, or just ordinary people, gathered on the Unter den Linden. And, wow. yeah. you know, it was just an sure. extraordinary, and people climbing all over the wall. The right. guards had just right. given up, and it, it was just right. ordinary people acting together exactly. and saying, We're not going to accept this situation anymore. Exactly. They kind of exactly. withdrew consent. 
right. from this reality, which all the politicians and bureaucrats and defense and it all just would, in a sense, had organized, organized their lives around this reality and ordinary people went, no, we're not going to organize our life around this reality anymore. We're going to institute a different reality through shared action. But those tremendous numbers of people didn't happen by themselves. It yeah. wasn't also just spontaneous. I mean, it was a lot of work done, particularly by um, the Protestant Church, uh, by mm. environmental groups, uh, despite all of the restrictions in uh, the German Democratic Republic, for example, to get the word out, to bring people together, to use symbols, yeah. to um, shared narratives, take, take shared to narratives, and, but to take exception. Uh, using mimeograph machines at the time uh, and, and and symbolic things like putting candles, uh, a candle in your window. Right. So, so the shared, the symbol creates this shared sense of connection. Oh, there are others like me. We it, can it, act together. It, exactly. I'm not alone. There is exactly. this interest between us. Yeah. We can, yeah. yeah Even under conditions powerful. which limited to a great extent the ability of of, of groups to come together, to right. share ideas, to agree on strategies and whatever. So so there's a number of texts that organizers and leaders have turned to by Aaron over the years. And and I know um in Ernie Cortez is very keen on on humanity and dark times, thoughts about lessing. You've already mentioned her book on on the human condition. I know a lot of folk read the third section on action. Um, and obviously particularly in more contemporary context, her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, has, has been widely read, but but often in informed organizing work we're going to focus on her extended essay on violence because i think she develops a very important understanding of power that informs the distinction between relational power and unilateral power can you just give us a bit of background when she wrote it and and why was this essay written sure it's very interesting if you look at her biographer elizabeth Youngbrühl and her description of of this time in Aaron's life uh, she calls it, she uses the title of one of Aaron's essays, um, America in Dark Times. Aaron wrote this essay, uh, Men in Dark Times, which obviously today would be titled a little differently. But in any case, um, this was a time in her life when she was not writing books, but she was much more an essayist. Right. And, what, roughly what date is this? Uh, we're talking about the late 60s. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and the whole period of the 60s in into the early 70s, I mean, till basically until her death, although she did begin to work on the life of the mind then when she yeah. was, you know, later, shortly before she died. In any case, this is this came about probably, uh, a lot of these thoughts started in the end of 1967 when she was part of a panel with Noam Chomsky and, okay. uh, and Connor Cruz O'Brien and a few others about the legitimacy of violence. Right. And it was part of a thing in New York called the Theater of Ideas, huh. uh, of which Aaron was a participant. And and um, so she was very much, this is probably the most um, uh, public uh, part of Aaron's life. She was never one to go to marches or protests, but she always, she was commenting on current affairs in her essays and they were receiving a lot of reaction and debate, and and in fact, uh, her biographer says she was the um, the gray eminence of the gray eminences in New York. Uh, 
describes her at this time. And of course, it is a time uh, of, of when several things are going on. The, the, back, the backdrop is, of course, the Cold War, mutually assured destruction as uh, what keeps the balance of power. Right. And at the same time, it's a very um, momentous time, particularly in, not only in American, but European, uh, Western European history, where you have the student movements of various kinds, student revolutions, I'm going to call them, or at least student rebellion. And and so uh, she gets into the thick of that as well right. in this um, essay, extended essay. She wrote a, an earlier version uh, that was that was published about a year before, and then this longer version that is the version right. we and the civil rights should say the civil rights civil rights civil rights movement uh, the other and and the anti-war movement at that point and where the civil rights movement and to some extent the student movement come together in and and also uh other movements in america come together in their opposition to the continued uh uh presence and 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 to the war in vietnam so that's that's the backdrop Right. right right and it's within that context and particularly as i say approximately this uh, debate, um, particularly with the new left, who at that point was then beginning to glorify violence as potentially the only way then to achieve change, uh, and then somewhat echoed in also in the Black Power Movement, right. uh, where then uh, breaking with Martin Luther King and the tradition of nonviolent protest to uh, postulate the necessity of violence in order to achieve um, what the movements wanted to achieve and and it's against that backdrop that that she writes uh, this right. essay and she i think the other context there is 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 the kind of post-colonial or anti-colonial struggles revolutionary struggles going off in africa or elsewhere yeah. got vietnam obviously seen in that light by many on the new left Pretty that sure. and and yeah, i mean <clears throat> one of the interesting figures she's kind of arguing with I think in the background is is people like Max Weber, mm-hmm. famous Clausewitz, Bakunin, anarchist, revolutionary anarchist thinker right. Mao, right. Yeah. but the, all these are advocates of violence as a means of change or as the basis of politics. But right. the particular figure who kind of keeps coming up is France Fanon, right. obviously key to anti-colonial struggles in in Algeria, but the key theorist of the place of revolutionary violence exactly. in kind of generating a new consciousness which wakes people up wakes the masses up to act be able to act together but ultimately there's all these things Weber, Clausewitz, Mao, Bakunin, in Fanon and that politics in a sense is war by other means and it seems to me that would you say that's the kind of heart of really I think that's the yeah that yeah and it it goes even I think even a a step deeper um she contends that that Basically, the whole of political tradition has conflated power and violence. Right. Uh, either saying that, uh, as you as you just mentioned, that in a sense that power is just in some sense mitigated violence or right. violence under some kind of control, or the opposite, that um, violence is simply power taken to another level, a, right. a, a, a power to the second power, so to speak, right. uh, violence as, and, and, and whether we are in a state of constant war and then we just mitigate it by going into a state of, of, of power in the form of a state or something like that. Or if when we leave the field of, uh, of politics, you know, Clausewitz's position. And, and she basically says that, that the whole of the tradition, she, I think she brings up one exception, a little bit of a different, a nuanced, more nuanced opinion, but basically 
um, power and violence are, are cognate and they, they are in relationship to one another and they are virtually part of the same reality. Right. And that's still, I mean, I would say that's still, I think of a social theorist like Michel sure. Foucault, lots of critical theories still basically mm-hmm. see power really in terms of violence. And mm-hmm. she's, she's saying, no, 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 you've got to separate out violence yes. Yes. from power. Yeah. Um, and, and that you can't, the, the attempt to kind of reduce politics to really forms of violence and, and command and control, you know, coerce is inherently mm-hmm. coercive. Right. That's a fundamentally misunderstanding. Or, or we can think of something yeah. like the and, ISIS and, and, and yeah. there's also this kind of spectacular use of violence. Yeah. Think about 9-11 to kind of wake people up. All of these are anti-political yes. use understandings. They, they, yeah, they destroy politics. Right. Basically, they make politics impossible. And, and then she, she tries to um, tease that out, of course, in, in this, in this uh, essay. Right, right. Uh, and I, I think, I, I mean, would you say the, the kind of background there, given the context of civil rights and anti-colonial struggles and all the rest of it, the sense of what, if we were looking for, there is a need for revolutionary change, there is a need for fundamental change, but how do we enact that? What is the way and do the means, um, it's not just a question of the means justify the ends, but the means, if you use violent means, they will overwhelm and and determine the ends and you will only produce more violence rather than a shared realm of action where you can realize yourself in freedom. And so it's, that seems to be very core. It's often missed, I think, in the interpretation of the essay, but that is really what she's saying. I think that's the core of it, yeah. And it comes from a false understanding of power. Right. So how do, how do, can you just expand a little bit about how do the themes of the essay connect to other bits for political theory? Can you kind of situate it in, in relation to her other work? I think the basis for much of her understanding of action and power it comes out of the human condition. Chapter 5, uh, particularly, there's a subsection 28 about where she really drills down on our understanding of power. Uh, and, and there are some connections to the, to the work to her book on revolution, which was written roughly around this same time or shortly before. So where she argues, um, that the nature of the American revolution had a lot to do with the generation of power, uh, rather than with the violence, if you will, of, of the actual fighting that in a certain sense, the revolution took place earlier when uh, people in the colonies came together and began to act. And that that's the the real um, nature of the revolution and that it did not really include the social factors. Instead, so she contra- contrasts that with the French Revolution and what happened in the French Revolution and that sort of verifying her thesis that afterwards you if you have the kind of revolution of the French Revolution, you get repression uh, and 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 authoritarian rule in some form or other. Whereas the American Revolution was somehow successful because it was able to kind of covenant in and around um, this uh, the ability of to to have shared action and to understand what that means. And that's how she gets into this. Uh, meme, if you will, about um, the necessity, uh, she quotes Jefferson most of the time, for having a system of having small assemblies basically everywhere 
citizen assemblies or whatever you want to call them, local councils, I think Jefferson called them. And that's why she likes this um, uh, this idea of Jefferson's or she also in connection with uh, with the Russian Revolution the, the or the German um, attempt at revolution and the the uh, the council system basically where you have small gatherings of people who come together to discuss debate issues and then and then and then act together uh, so those are I think the two basic connections she really doesn't say anything so new about power in in on violence but she does uh, go into much greater depth about the nature of violence as opposed to power that's I think that's the um, that's the difference. In, can you can you give us just a very brief overview of the essay and, and the kind of what are, what are its core core elements of each of its? It has three sections. The extended version has yeah yeah three sections. The first section is basically a background, which we've talked about a little bit of of uh, the Cold War of various kinds of um, um, reform or revolutionary movements, uh, and then this uh, looking at the new lefts. Uh, seeming glorification of violence as the reason, really the proximate reason for writing the essay. Section two is the theoretical portion, really, where she does what you might want to call from a Confucianist perspective, a rectification of names. She says it's it's, it's important what you call things. And so we shouldn't I might, I might put that in Wittgensteinian terms, rather. Yeah, right. <laughs> Wittgensteinian terms. But words mean something. And, and this um, careless use of strength, authority, force, violence, and power to mean almost always the same things, uh, we need to be much more deliberate about that. And she tries to really uh, analyze the differences and, and, at least for her purposes, put these into different categories. The third section is then where she goes more deeply into the nature of violence, where she basically says violence is neither irrational, uh, nor is it inhuman, nor is it, on the other hand, a creative force, as some would say, like Fanon or uh, connecting to Bergson or others, um, but that it is um, ultimately destructive of politics. That's her, and because it prohibits action, the only... uh, I shall put it, nod she gives to violence or um, two things. One is that sometimes violence, it's never legitimate, legitimate, but sometimes it can be justified. Yeah. She's not uh, completely, doesn't completely rule no, that. There, no. there are occasions when that is the only. When, when that is the only. And, and, and to some extent she says, yes, maybe Conor Cruz O'Brien is right when he says sometimes the only way to get people to focus on, uh, in fact, um, the misuse of violence or the use of violence is by counterviolence. Uh, but she doesn't give too much. Um, she's pretty, pretty clear power and violence are opposites. That's her, her point. And she goes through a whole series of, um, distinctions that, that make that clear. So if, if, um, Kind of expand a bit then on on how she sees the distinction. I mean, so I just yeah did want to say it, that I've done an earlier episode on Bayard Rustin. He has this famous essay, often used in in organising from protest to politics. 
in some ways you could hear this is Arendt's, it's from violence to politics. It's from it's violence how, but, to politics, but yeah, but also yeah. from in a sense from protest to politics because because uh, she has some side comments and on violence about her view of uh, of various protest movements and and um, and their their inability, if you will, to um, really what her worry is always and, and this is I think we've seen this happen. Uh, her worry is kind of what happens after the revolution. Uh, and who actually ends up being in in power or has the means of violence? I mean, this also goes against the whole tradition of of contract thinking. Right? Why is that? Uh, well, I mean, basically, the state is defined as having a legitimate uh, monopoly on violence. Right. Right. And, I think and so we, that, she, she's thinking there of uh, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, right, and the kind of social right. contractor, even exactly. Rousseau, and even yeah, Rousseau tradition. less so. I mean, she right. she sees in Rousseau a, a difference here, okay, uh, which she points out in some footnotes in, in the Human Condition. But Hobbes and and yeah, uh, Locke. Yeah. So you come together to contract. It's a kind of mid, in some ways you could understand a contract as the kind of mitigation of violence. Um, uh, you know, in Hobbes's terms, life is not nasty, brutal, right. and short, short outside, outside of a kind of state of, exactly. and social contract structure. She's saying, no, actually, life has this shared interest, and we can come together, and that's the basis. Then, and, and then we consolidate that in various forms. You consolidate of state that, and legal but, and other. And exactly. But that's always secondary and always derived. And when that basis, when those institutions or whatever we put together are no longer able to act, they collapse. So she cites in, in France, particularly in, in on violence, the, the way in which de Gaulle took power was that the student revolution, in, in fact, caused the government to fall to the surprise of everybody, that this relatively, relatively small group of people outside of the normal in quotes, normal population is able to bring down a government. But then what happens is there's this sort of this power vacuum and, and they're not organized enough and not covenanted enough, we might say. And de Gaulle steps in and, and takes over and, and proclaims the third. We could see exa exactly Gaulle. parallel, more contemporary example would be what happened in the Arab Spring in 2011. The relatively small number of people, Tahrir Square, bring down the government power vacuum, first the Muslim Brotherhood, and then and even and in some ways even more repressive dictator steps in. And this is, you know, the Marx has that great line is first first as tragedy, then as farce. This is a kind of consistent pattern. It's the Russian Revolution. We end up with Stalin, even worse, repressive, more repressive, violent regime. So that that sense of you we constantly see this in history, that she's she's kind of it's political theory is a political philosophy. She is reflecting on historical experience. On historical experience. It's and, always and saying, always part yeah, of, yeah, especially yeah. at this time, what she's doing is commenting on on contemporary experience. So can you just distinguish between um, violence and power? What sure. is she? Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, and that's what she does. She always uses power as the foil for her understanding of violence. So one of the first things is uh, violence in her understanding always needs instruments, always needs physical, fungible things. And that's why in a certain guns, sense, tanks, guns, bombs. tanks, knives, bombs, uh, and it's always kind of a spiral 
of, you know, if somebody pulls out a knife, the next guy pulls out a, a gun and, and then, you know, a bazooka or whatever. So that there's this kind of escalation of, of instruments. And that's why, in a certain sense, violence can be, be stored up in terms of instruments and money that buys those instruments. Um, and whereas power is dependent solely on collective action, on action in, in concert. So it's not fungible but rather very fragile. So fungible, it just means transferable. Yeah, yeah. I I produce so many AK-47s, I can ship them over to Ukraine. They can use them. But I can't build up power in America and then ship that to Ukraine. Yeah, Exactly. They can use them. And so I can't give power to anybody either, which is one of the things we say in organizing. Uh, The the rhetoric of, we're very critical of the rhetoric, the rhetoric of empowerment, as if someone can give power. Uh, for Arendt, you couldn't, she, if you asked her that question, she would undoubtedly say, no, you can't give anybody power. They have to, uh, come together in order to generate it. And that's the term she uses. She talks about power as being generated in action or in her, in the German, uh, she uses this word, um, uh, endowed, literally. She calls it power, uh, which is the same word you use, for example, for an endowment or for a, for a foundation. Um, so that's that's one of the things uh, or one of the points that's important. Uh, and, and a lot of it flows from that. Uh, power always depends and action always depends on speaking. Or shared action, I should say. Shared, a- shared action always depends on speaking and doing. And so, you know, there's no such thing as mute shared action. As I guess there, then there are certain conditions if we're going to act together um, then and and that only arises through shared speech. Speech. And yeah. We have to we have to talk to each other, and and violence uh, is 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 uh, she would say is mute. Violence allows the guns or whatever the weapons are to speak in in quotes, uh, but power always necessitates speech and and communication if you want to call it that, mm. and listening uh, and therefore and, the ability right. to hear others. And if I'm if I'm killing you, I can't hear you. If I'm repressing I, I you, I can't through, hear you. I, I can only hear your cries of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or of, I'm putting you in prison. I can't right, hear you. Right, if I'm, right, so right. there are certain conditions then of shared action, which is the ability to hear and speak. So freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, all of that flows out of that. Falls falls out of that. She has she has a great a great quote if I can find it. But um, there's a great quote about about what kind of speech uh, here. You know, power is actualized only where word and deed have not parted company, where words are not empty and deeds not brutal, where words are not used to veil intentions but to disclose realities, and deeds are not used to violate and destroy but to establish relations and create new realities. Right. So I guess another, coming out of that, another condition then, which we've seen undermined very intensively today, is you have to be able to trust other people's work. Yes. The systematic yes. use of lies, whether in totalitarian propaganda or in the kind of, you know, um, the world we see of fake news sure. and, and manipulation of, of all the consistent lies in, in certainly in American politics context, that you can't, if you can't trust what people are saying and, and, and act together on, on trustworthy words, then you can't act together. You can't because, act together. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what flows from that for her is that. Uh, as we've already mentioned, in a sense, power builds relationships, whereas violence destroys them. 
it it closes down the space for action rather than opening it or expanding it or doing whatever. And as she says, power needs no justification. You need to legitimize your power, but you don't have to justify the fact that power comes to be when people act. So, what does she just expand on? What what does she mean by that? Why don't you have to justify power? Because she says it's a basic human reality of action. In a certain sense, you could say violence is derivative for uh, not derivative, but violence is not a fundamental human category, right? Um, whereas power is. Because it in belongs. some ways, do you think she's kind of, there's almost a sense for her that violence is this kind of human thing, that, the kind of distinctly human thing we can do, whereas power is inherent to the condition of all being of life. Like there's, that's, there's almost a kind of, I hate to use a bit of kind of vitalism, but there's a, what it means to be a human animal shared with all animals is you can come together to act in this way. Um, but then the distinctly human way of doing that is through shared speech and, and kind of forming relationships in particular ways. Violence is also a human action. Animals don't do violence, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, but that it's, it's kind of destroys this ability, this more fundamental ability. Animals do use tools apparently. So, but anyway, we can argue about those things about, you know, but she does make that distinction early on in the. She SCM. does. She does very clearly, and and so you don't need to justify power because it belongs what to what she would I would think because it belongs to what she calls human natality. So it's it's a it's inherently human to be an initiator. She quotes Augustine on this from someplace where uh, so that a beginning could be made, uh, humans were created. So. Um, I think it's is it is it's either the commentary on Genesis or it's in Confessions. I can remember. Which I, way I think it might be in the Confessions. Actually, yeah, I'm exactly. not quite sure. But in in any case, um, that's where she pulls it out of. She, interestingly enough, she did her um, doctoral dissertation in Berlin on uh, on Augustine and, and free will, and she wanted to call actually the the title Human Condition was 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 done by the publishers. All right. She wanted to call the book for love of the world. Right. Uh, which she kind of, in her doctoral dissertation, uh, she, that's how, that she comes down to the point that Augustine doesn't love the world. You, know, you love God, you don't love the world. And, and she wanted to make this counterpoint of, uh, for love of the world. But in any case, um, you can sometimes justify violence. She would cite self-defense, for example. And sometimes she even goes as far as to say, it's the only way to achieve justice. She quotes yeah. Billy Budd. And yeah. And the Melville, the Melville, uh, uh, the only, story. Right, the only way to to get justice is is f- for him to murder uh, the offender, so to speak. And she also but there's then, a rare exception. Rare, exceptions. those are rare exceptions. Rare exceptions. And even when you do that, you might be justified, but you're not being political. You're not engaging in the most, in the best human activity. I mean, here she's very Aristotelian. The best human activity is neither laboring in private, nor is it contemplating the the, the divine or whatever you contemplate. Uh, it is action. Yeah. So I think there's, I mean, we could contrast there, I think quite helpfully, you know, there's been a number of uh, uh, figures who represent the kind of ideal the true human, the true human flourishing. We can think of the knight, the on the kind of whole a deep European sensibility of the honor 
and chivalric kind of honor and the knight as this figure of the truly honorable person, the truly public person, the truly flourishing figure. But ultimately, violence is at the root of that figure. We could think of the monk, the guru, the spiritual leader, who's this contemplate, the philosopher, the sage, who's kind of contemplating withdraws from life and contemplates ideals. Again, that's not the picture of human flourishing, nor is it the kind of entrepreneur who's endlessly making, you know, the masks, the Steve Jobs. They're just, they're all about production, producing money, money, money. That's not the ideal figure. It's it's the citizen who comes together with others to produce to make a world through their shared action. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think that's always helpful to kind of set those contrasts. Like, wh- who do we figure as the ideal for picture of full human fulfillment? The, 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 the ordinary person who comes together in a local council. Right. To on a to, rainy Thursday to afternoon. A rainy Thursday or an evening, you know, evening. Uh, to uh, shape the shared life of of a, of a democratic community in whatever form, from small. It's this kind of life. mundane picture. And in many ways, a very mundane picture of that. That really is the fulfillment of the, the kind of truly human is that, that coming together to do that kind of, to make a, a common world. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and that's problematic when you try to scale that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Can can you just say a little bit about the, then how that feeds into the the distinction between relational power and unilateral power? Sure. I mean, I think the way it developed, at least in my mind, in teaching this in an organizing context is to uh, try to contrast Arendt's notion of power with power as people generally tend to experience it. Namely, in this form of command and obedience, in this form of coercion, uh, at its worst at times, or at least of of um, an unequal uh, playing field, if you will, where there are people in power or who have power, and then there are people who lack power, without power, uh, powerless in whatever form. And and so to contrast the fact that the way we generally understand power and experience power doesn't have to be the way that it can be, that there is there is an element which, as we would say in Oregon, perhaps moves toward the world as it should be, and the world as it should be is a world where political action is not something that is limited to people who have office or have certain uh, lawmaking possibilities or whatever it might be, but every person has the ability if they come together with others to do this. And that generates power. So the other thing Aaron always says is power is not a zero-sum game. It's not like somebody has to lose power if power is generated through action, but in a sense, power is expanded. Uh, so to to use that as the contrast to teach the possibility for another kind of power taking taking place or happening through action, shared action, collective action, uh, that opens a different horizon for people who are only accustomed to this form of power that we see oftentimes. Uh, uh, so that contrast there between a kind of command and control unilateral power over that forces you to do and you're rendered passive and relational power, which comes, the more people we have, like a union or a family, or the more of this there are, the more power we have to act together. And so it's not a, 
zero-sum game, but it's expansive. It's expansive, it's generative, and it it brings things into motion. It, it, it gets us off the dime, so to speak, of the status quo. Right, right. And there's a sense there that power is fluid as well. Like command and control forms of power are static, fixed. You can only act in one way. If it's not my way, it's the high, you know, get on the highway. Like, you, you know, you can't do it. Whereas the generative relational view of power, it can spring up in new places, new groups. Think about the civil rights movement. New groups who previously didn't have power now have power through shared action and can generate new things in the world. So it's, yeah, that's a, it's a, this creative, process creative generative it it kicks things into into motion where they seem to be static that's part of the reason that it's it's um you know it's very often seen askance by those who have this other kind of power so so i think that's the way we've come to teach it uh in the context say of the industrial areas foundation perhaps and other organizing networks as well I mean, the the titles of it, the idea of relational power comes to some extent out of Habermas's riff on Arendt, but also from Bernard Loomer, who talks about two kinds of power, um, relational and, 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 and unilateral or um, power over and versus power with another way of, of expressing that. So, yeah, because there are a number of other accounts of power along these lines. You mentioned Luma. There's a, um, a couple of other ones from 19th century and el- elsewhere. And, and uh, But she, this, both the on violence and elsewhere in her work, I think gives one of, a kind of puts it in this much bigger, this kind of distinction between unilateral relational power, puts it in a much bigger frame frame mm, of framework. reference. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I mean, interestingly enough, her frame of reference was, I think, humanity in general, if you will, uh, although her examples are all very specific and to some extent quite limited in their um, in their scope. And, and I mean, that's one of the issues I think that comes up, of course, with scale. I mean, one commentator on Arendt has, has talked about uh, what she's all about are islands of democratic practice in sort of a sea of uh, uh, of, of, of what is not real democratic practice, right? Right. Can you can you say a little bit about how then her, we touched on this before, but but how this concept of power relates to our understanding of freedom, um, and and why that matters for democratic politics? Well, I think it comes back once more to the ability to begin to initiate to do that together to make a beginning, uh, as opposed to simply reacting to conditions as they are, and being therefore determined in a certain sense right to act according to particular laws circumstances uh, so that action is possible even when it seems that action is not possible if you will. right, right. Uh, where it's under conditions which would seem to preclude action it nevertheless takes place right like in for her in the Hungarian revolution or the student um, the student movement. even in totalitarian even in totalitarian and we situations. see that yeah yeah, yeah. and it. and it's been verified later if you will right. uh, in historical examples so that so that uh, and and of course if you go back to our analysis of totalitarianism that's precisely what the nature of totalitarianism totalitarianism is it is atomization it is cutting people off from one another and therefore inhibiting their ability to act together. 
Uh, and that's, that's how she analyzes the nature of totalitarianism as different, as a different phenomenon than tyranny or other uh, oppressive forms that from the past. And that's what for her makes uh, the situation in Nazi Germany and in, in Lenin and Stalin, or Stalin, not Lenin, but Stalin's uh, Russia. Uh, that's what makes it different and makes it a different and new phenomenon of, of, of modern times. Because it, it totally isolates people. They can't act together. Therefore, they can't generate shared, for, shared forms of power. And therefore, ultimately, it's deeply dehumanizing because you can't realize yourself in relation to others. Right, right. And it, it right. basically pits each against all. I mean, right. in a certain sense, it's the it's the Hobbesian situation. There's a weird way in which politics, Hobbes' politics, it's the state and politics is the answer to a kind of pre-political state and then a weird way she inverts that and says yes totalitarianism's heavy statism produces a kind of pre or in unpolitical state, an unpolitical state um and and so in that sense if you can't gather you're not free because you can't you can't act together with other right. people. So freedom, contrary to someone like Isaiah Berlin and other, like freedom isn't freedom from constraint. It's this freedom to act with and for others. And that's how we become free rather than separating out. And in many ways, it's the reverse, that the kind of freedom from constraint and just don't tread on me, leave me alone. I'm my own person. I'm my own king. Isolation actually is anti-freedom it stops you being able to act freely with and for others be free through acting with and for others it actually produces your oppression so there's a weird way in which a kind of libertarian view for premised on a rhetoric of freedom actually produces its paradoxically as its opposite which is unfreedom and you're entirely subject to either the state or the market or blown every which way by demagogues who you know kind of whip you up but but Precisely isolate you. where you, yeah. where you, yeah, where you're taken as an isolated individual with no, with no history, really, um, and with no story, because your story is incorporated into the whatever narrative it might be that lumps you all together, whether it be all the users of TikTok or the uh, whatever. Um, you lose nationalism, nationalism, of course, in the bigger sense, but but you lose. Um, uh, what she would say is the the revelation of the who, the who right. someone is. Uh, so just, I'm not quite making the connection to story. So the story, because we come together, we develop our own shared story through which who we are as a people is configured rather than I'm given a story or a script which I conform to, but someone else dictates. Someone else dictates, yeah. We write history in our collective action, even right. if we don't often understand it, or it only afterwards, kind of only in retrospect. Pick, picking up on that, so we've mentioned already the importance of kind of promise keeping uh, and and covenanting. Another key element of her, and she picks up on this in develops this in in on the human condition is forgiveness. If we're going to come together for shared action things are also going to go wrong. We're going to do bad things to each other. Can you just expand a little bit on, on why forgiveness is central to politics for her? Well, basically she says the results of action are irreversible. Once you set something in motion, 
um, it, it continues to be a presence somehow. And so unless you can undo that, then uh, action is going to also lead to bad outcomes, if you will. And so the only remedy she sees of that for that is the remedy of being able to forgive, is being able to say that what has happened will not determine the future uh, in, a, in a certain sense. Obviously, you can't completely erase the results of action, but at least you're able to keep a collective together by being able to uh, being able to forgive. So forgiveness enables you to kind of remedy if you uh, without forgiveness you just end up with blood feuds. It's always going to collapse into some kind of violence. Some kind of violence, and this is what keeps the possibility for action for politics open. Yeah, both promise and forgiveness as the the two remedies that. Um, humankind have found, so to speak, to, to at least in some way ameliorate the, the, um, the, the, the difficulties with action, uh, without closing off action as the political. And it, there's a funny way in which it, it she's, because forgiveness, you can't generate, I've never quite understood this in a way, but it, 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 it forgiveness, you can't generate forgiveness through political, through politics. But politics entirely depends in, in the realities of the world. If we're going to avoid collapsing into blood feuds or endless cycles of violence, we need we need forgiveness. So it's it's it seems a condition of politics is forgiveness, but but forgiveness but, can't but be forgiveness, produced by politics. Exactly, yeah. Politics can't produce forgiveness. Which that's which where is, she gets very theological she, at that point. Yeah, she does. <laughs> I know she she does, uh, and I mean she has interesting borrowings from Christian tradition. Um, because she did study uh, theology as well with, with I think it was with Boltman. But in any case, um, yeah, I think that's a good point. And that's a, obviously a, a very important critique. She says we need it, but she really doesn't say where, you, where it comes from. Where, where it comes from. <laughs> <laughs> how, you, how you get it, uh, at least not in a political sense. Uh, it, it seems extra political. With, so with that kind of transition to the to the theological, I just want to end by th- inviting you to think a little bit about this. You mentioned already the role of small scale associations to politics, and that's where we discover our politicalness, to use, use a Wolin term. But but the sense of we become as human as political animals through these through these smaller scale associations. I'm very struck there by a kind of certain resonance with elements of Catholic social teaching and, and obviously most recently Pope Francis in his encyclical Let Us Dream has kind of held up the importance of I think what he calls them an archipelago of associations and movements and various other things. But there's this long standing going going right back to Rerum Neverum of notions of subsidiarity and solidarity. Actually I think they develop a bit later. But but can you just make that connection? What's what's that that under, her understanding of the importance of small scale association and in Catholic social teaching, these notions of subsidiarity, solidarity, in the place of uh, of association. Sure. Well, I mean, I think in a certain sense, Catholic social teaching is is enunciating some basic truths about relationships and and uh, and about action and about change. And and fundamental to that is that you have some, I think, some scale. Where relationship is possible. I mean, that's, you know, part of a, a, a organizing critique of movements to some extent is there's not enough 
energy and time to develop relationships between people. Right. You have a crowd rather you have than a, you have a, a crowd rather than a a web of relationships, as Aaron would call it. So that so that Catholic social teaching and talking about solidarity, I think understands it at a at least at the beginning at a very local level. And a very, you know, it's something that takes place within a, a community that is linked together. I mean, what you've called a community of fate, I guess, right, in your work, that's the level at which it has to begin to happen. You can't proclaim solidarity uh, at some high level. Uh, and, and in fact, that's what, that's often what repressive regimes try to do. And even the whole idea of nationalism, you know, we are uh, a, a people uh, that's not neither in Aaron's sense nor in, in uh, Catholic social teaching. That that's not the kind of solidarity we're talking about. Right. So the solidarity, so solidarity. There's a kind of full solidarity of the nation, whipped up by nationalism, and we've got this all sense of a loyalty and identity to this quite abstract meta form, narrative or form, narrative whatever it is, and, yeah. and form of belonging. And whereas it's almost paradoxical, both in Catholic social teaching and in Aaron, solidarity is built from the grassroots up through small scale associations and then them coming together and then them forming broader webs of interconnected associations and institutions. And that's real solidarity. Um, but then you've got to have then decision making at that local level. That's the notion of subsidiarity. That's subsidiarity. That that those things that can be done at, at a lower level of organization be done there and not taken over by by higher levels. Um, and that this all all connects into then how do we become persons through these forms of, of smaller scale relationships and then realize our freedom in relationship with each other through multiple kinds of association coming together. And that Maritain talks about this as kind of um, fr kind of fraternal, I can't remember the exact term, but, but plurality of fraternities, as it were. I mean, it's a problematic language, but. Yes, I think that, that, that gets at it. And, and the other thing that it also does is um, shows the priority of civil society over state and market. Uh, that's very clearly enunciated in the uh, in the compendium of Catholic social teaching, which amazes Germans when you read them that those passages, which which say that uh, in this case the political community exists for the sake of the community of civil society, right? right. Which which or the state exists to serve society, not society to serve the state. Yeah, the state exists. Yeah, politics. Yeah. Politics exists, to, yeah, right? And um, I think that's a core point in Catholic social teaching that um, also gets lost a lot uh, in, in many different situations, that uh, that the third sector is the first sector, not, not the third sector. Right, <laughs> right. And something's gone horribly wrong if society is serving either the market or the state rather than market and state being means – to enable social flourishing means to enable to enable social flourishing that happens or that depends on the relationships in uh, in society uh, in, in in all different forms, and that's where you get this idea. Then I think also of the archipelago, the uh, you know series of islands, which 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 oftentimes are isolated, which oftentimes are 
unable to act beyond a certain scope. And, and then the question really becomes the question of scale and, and sort of are we, are we doomed on the other hand to these mega narratives or meta narratives, uh, of solidarity, which get further and further from people's experience and right. relationships. Yeah. No, that's a, I think that, and that's always the fight. The struggle mm-hmm. is to create these meaningful stories, meaningful relationships that build up the quality and character of relationship between us at this more kind of local or, or, or smaller scale level. However, and I don't think that necessarily means proximity. We can think about that in more network terms or mediated terms, but you've got some sense of shared connection and shared ability to act with others. And when you lose that, then you're subject to these false solidarities, which you think you're connected, but it's a very thin, brittle. Right. Or you are told that you are connected to. Right. Uh, you were dictated to in a certain sense that you that you belong to this narrative and and then of course some of the realization is or you see what happens when when people come to the realization that that this narrative doesn't include them and I think a lot of a lot of what we're seeing today in in several sectors of, of society is people realizing that they've been excluded from the narrative even though they've been told this is a narrative for everybody they experience that this narrative only applies to certain people. Right, right. Again, whether that's a, the American dream narrative or national story or whatever it is. So the, then the, but then the work of inclusion is not... How to, how to just write a new narrative. It's, it's how, how people come together to change the narrative. Yeah. Or to uh, but build write out their own, yeah, yeah, from a, from a from a different from a from basis a of relationships, not from a basis of someone dictating the story, uh, so yeah. to speak. What to just to just to bring us into close, what what would you say are some of the kind of key lessons for organizers and leaders that we need to learn from Aaron today for organizing in the contemporary context? Well, I th- I think we have to see it as as the whatever you want to call it, the job, the goal, the, the, the what we need to do in organizing is to keep political spaces, if you will, alive in the sense that we've talked about them. And so that initiatory action is possible and not just uh, completely spontaneous, if you will, but it has an ongoing character to it um, so that people can maintain relationship and therefore maintain the possibility of action. And for, for Arendt, that is power. The potential side of power is the possibility for shared action, right? So, and I think that's what we're charged ultimately with doing. And that has a lot then to do with how relationships are are maintained, deepened, um, new relationships across boundaries are established. And I think it has a lot to do also a bit with, uh, Aaron touches on this in other places, about the what you would call public happiness, uh, the, the, the joy that comes from doing this, uh, which I think is not an insignificant factor. Uh, there is a certain amount of, even when sometimes you don't win all the time, if you will, but, but the very fact of being in action together with people. I mean, I, I think we've, we've come to see how important that is during the pandemic times where, where so much of that has been limited or, you know, when people gather, they're behind face masks, um, all that kind, all those things, they really deter. Uh, action, shared action, shared action, and and um, 
No, I think it's a lovely point that that sense of that there's an it's not just shared action as some kind of worthy thing. There's an energy, a vitality, a joy, a gladness which comes through these experiences of shared action where you that's that's how you are realizing yourself. You suddenly become you realize you're more than you thought you you, you can do more than you could be through this, through exercising this leadership with others. And and that itself brings its own energy and motivation to kind of keep keep going on the, the personal the personal growth if you want to call it that that takes place because of shared action which you can't get on your own you can't get by visiting some guru you can't get by simply locking yourself up in your room and, and meditating on whatever it might be uh you can't get that by watching a screen um you know where we see people do get some of it is is is, is sporting events and and, right. and and things of those kind where you do have this shared energy and, and whatnot, but but people are only spectators and not participants. I think the key point is that people are participants and not just spectators to something done in front of them, but something to which they have in some form um, helped shape or uh, contributed to and participated in and and. You know, were you there when the mayor said yes to this or that? You know, um, so I think that's another aspect that that we need to look at for all of the difficulties and all of the uh, oftentimes uh, you know negative aspects of, of some of this work. Uh, there, there are some very genuine moments of, of of joy, of fulfillment, of seeing other people also uh, reach or do things that that they didn't think they were capable of. So I think that's, that's a piece of it. And, and I think in a more, in a more basic sense, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the job of uh, in, in, in keeping democracy alive in a time when, when it is threatened, it, that it is a, a very fragile and as, as Wallen says, fugitive kind of <laughs> being together. And so uh, it needs to be constantly, um, Renewed, renewed, built up. built up, and regenerated, so to speak. Leo, thank you so much. What a what a wonderful conversation, and and really helped open up Arrington organizing the connection between them for us today. Thank, thank you. you. I appreciate it very much, and uh, look forward to uh, to more of these podcasts and uh, to listening to this one. for joining me for this episode of the Listen, Organize, Act podcast, in which I explored Hannah Arendt's understanding of politics and why it's so helpful as a way to frame the work of organizing. The podcast is sponsored by the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. And as with other episodes, you can download readings directly relevant to the episode from the website www.ormancenter.com backslash listen-organize-act-podcast. Follow me also on Twitter at West London Man for updates on the podcast and other relevant news and information. For now, let me say goodbye and I hope you join me next time for a discussion of the political philosopher Sheldon Wolin and his classic essay, Contract and Birthright. Mm-hmm.